Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, church family. Are you guys ready to get into God's Word? All right, let's do it. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 if you want to get a head start and move there today. But as we're laying the foundation for today's message titled Mistaken Identity, let me ask you this question. Have you ever had a case of mistaken identity? Where somebody thought you were someone else or maybe you thought someone else was somebody they were not? Or this week I was sitting in my office right here on Strickland Road in Raleigh, North Carolina, to be clear for anybody who woke up in a fog this morning. And I got a text message that said, did you just spend $184 in Sanford, North Carolina? And I know you can shop online, but that was not me. That was not my wife. It was a fraud alert. Somebody was trying to use my identity. And I thought, how appropriate with the passage I'm studying right now that we're going to look at and talk about mistaken identity. And I was reading different stories this week. There are all kinds of stories out there. Some of you, maybe you believe you've got a, a long-lost twin that you've never met and you've done the doppelganger game on your social media, put some celebrity out there. Like, don't you see how much I look like Brad Pitt? Why is everybody picking Brad Pitt? Anyway. And some of you have played board games and you're a really good liar, so you pretend like you're somebody that you're not. I'm looking at somebody I was playing a board game with last night because they beat me. Anyway, um, but I was reading stories this week, and there are, story, there are some wild ones. There's people that have been um, killed in car accidents and misidentified. They've had a funeral for the wrong person before. There's stories of people who have been arrested for crimes they didn't commit, falsely identified as someone else, and confessed to those crimes. There's a lot of psychology in all of that. But I was thinking about a story to help you uh, grasp what I'm talking about this morning. There's one that was given to me by multiple people in our church. I think one of the benefits of me preaching regularly is that several of you feel like compassion towards me or something. You're like, how does he come up with all these stories? I've got to feed him some material. And so I had several people tell me the same story about this one guy. His name was, have you heard this name before? Frederick Bourdain? Anybody heard that name? Not, not, the, not a lot, so I'll tell you some of the details of the story. Frederick Bourdain, if you look him up, just Wikipedia even right now or whatever you want to do, you'll find out that his nickname is The Chameleon. Because he's assumed over 500 people's identities in his life. Now, he's not just one of those people, like, you know, sometimes comedians will start to impersonate someone. Like, you impersonate, and you do the, the mannerisms of a famous politician or celebrity, and you say stuff with their accent or their tone and all that kind of stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. He'd actually start living these people's lives. <laughs> There's a documentary done about him in 2012. It was called The Imposter, about his most infamous crime. And the story goes that when he was 23 years old, he was found uh, without any identification on him in Spain. He was taken to the police department. He saw a missing poster, the missing poster of a missing child named Nicholas Barclay. The poster was in black and white, which makes sense to what he does here in just a moment. Uh, just to let you know, Nicholas Barclay went missing in 1994 when, he was found, when um, Frederick Bourdain was found in Spain. It was 1997. It had been three years. When Nicholas Barclay went missing, he was 13 years old. Frederick Bourdain, when he sees this poster, is 23 years old. He assumes the identity of this kid. Nicholas Barclay had blonde hair, blue eyes, was from San Antonio, Texas. Went missing without really any sign of what had happened. Frederick Bourdain, sitting in a police department, decided he was going to assume this kid's identity. Didn't realize he had blonde hair and blue eyes because Frederick Bourdain has an Algerian father. He's got black hair, brown eyes, dark skin. The only way he can speak English is with a French accent. But he comes up with this story, and he starts telling it. They call the Barclay family. The Barclay family sends their, Nicholas's sister to Spain to pick up Frederick Bourdain, identifying himself as Nicholas Barclay, flies him back to live with the family in San Antonio, Texas. 
<laughs> he lives with them for five months, and they don't figure out this isn't our son. Because he tells stories about how he was kidnapped three years ago because he's been living over there. That's why he's picked up this French accent. He said that he was tortured, forced into prostitution, that they used chemicals to change the color of his eyes. He was found out after five months, but not by the family, by a private investigator who didn't think his ears lined up. <laughs> and that's what you see in the documentary. But what you find if you read about his life is that he went on, he went to jail for doing that for six years. After he got out of jail, he did it multiple times again, often assuming the identity of an orphan. The last time that he was caught, he was 30 years old, and he was assuming the identity of a 15-year-old boy, an orphan. And so the question has to be, why? Why would you do this? Now, you've probably, some of you have probably seen the movie Catch Me If You Can, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, he's being Frank Abengale, and, and he's trying to pretend like pilots and pretend like doctors. It's because he's greedy. He wants money. But that was not why Frederick Bourdain did this. Let me read you a quote from the documentary, slightly edited to take out a little language, but this is, this is his words. Nobody ever really cared about me. To know that if I changed my identity, the reward was to eventually be put in a place where they really cared about me, then yeah. If the reward is that great to be loved, then it's worth the risk, six years in prison. Let me tell you why I'm telling you this story. And here's the foundational truth for the sermon that you're going to hear in just a second. Your God determines your identity. Who your God is will dictate the identity that you live out. And so our God is ba our identity is based on our God. And so that means that if you are a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, then your God is the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of uh, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, Jesus who died on the cross for your sins, the Holy Spirit who indwells your life, God the Father who's sovereignly ruling over all. We often hear Pastor Seth say, let's go to the Father, by the Son, through the Spirit. And if that is your God, then what the Bible says about you is your identity. But, let's just play a little game for a second. If your God is, you fill in the blank with any little G-God here, if your God is other people's praise, you can call it popularity. You can call it fame. Probably depends on how old you are and where you're at in life, on which title you use. It's all the same thing. Then your identity will be you becoming whatever you think those people want you to be. See, your God dictates your identity. If your God is power, and call it whatever phrase you want to use for that, then your life will be defined by your desire to obtain that power. And whatever lie you believe is the thing that obtains that power. Position, money, whatever it is. If your God, little g-God, the most important thing in your life, is what I mean by that, if your God is accomplishment, then your identity will be defined by the awards you win, by the things you produce in life. Like whatever it is you think accomplishment is pictured as. So your God dictates your identity. Here's the problem for many people in Corinth, is they had a false identity. I follow Peter, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. Many people in this room will proclaim Christianity, and if you've really surrendered your heart to Jesus, you're really a Christian, but you live by a mistaken identity when you allow these false gods to then dictate your identity. And that's what was happening in Corinth. That's what's happening all over RDU. It's our problem today. Because we live by a false identity. And so today what Paul does to the Corinthians and what I hope to do to you is to remind you of who you are. And so as we walk through this passage of scripture, I hope you'll just ask yourself the question, who am I? Now, I have no doubts. If I bumped into you in the hallway, in the lobby, we'd never met before, I'd say, hey, I'm Scott. What's your name? You know your name. 
You know what you do for a living. But some of us have been living with a false identity for so long, we don't even know who we truly are. And so hopefully we'll see it as we open up this passage. If you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you didn't turn there already, and you saw the video before I got up here to start talking to you, and it was called Letters to RDU. Now maybe you're a guest and you're wondering, why if we're studying 1 Corinthians as a church, why are they calling it Letters to RDU? Let me tell you, real simply, it's because there's so many similarities between what's happening in Corinth and what's happening in our lives here in the triangle today. They were tempted with the same temptations we have. Their temptation to bow their knee to the same unholy trinity that we are tempted to bow our knees to, the false gods. They were dealing with the same issues, had the same questions, and so we're calling this letter, letter R to you, because God's speaking to us through what was written to these Corinthians so long ago. And if you were here last week, you know that Pastor Dave Morley preached a great message to start in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and it talked about in the, the very beginning of this passage, the different analogies of the church. And so the first analogy was that the church is like a field. And Paul said, you know, you can plant the seed, and I planted the seed, and Apollos, he, he watered it, but God's the one who gives the growth. And so the church is also like a building, and he uses more of an urban, he uses the agricultural, now he uses more of an urban analogy, and he says that Jesus Christ is the only foundation. And it's not a real church of anything other than Jesus Christ is the foundation. Jesus is the foundation of the church. Let nobody else build on any other foundation but the foundation, which is Jesus. But remember the problem. In the first four chapters, they got a lot of problems. We're going to get into a bunch of stuff. It's going to get real sexual, starting in chapter 5. We're going to have this theological debate in chapters 8 through 10. And there's, there's different things that are abusing the gifts in chapters 12 through 14. But in the first four chapters, he's talking about their problem of division in the church, which was rooted in their mistaken identity. I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. Look at what he says in verse 16. Verse 16, it starts off, Do you not know that you are God's temple? There's your identity statement. You are, indicative statement, you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Whoa, that's a big warning. For God's temple is holy, set apart, different, and you are that temple. Let's break this down phrase by phrase. The first phrase is interesting. Do you not know? <laughs> Paul only uses that phrase one other time in all the New Testament books that he writes, but in the book of 1 Corinthians, he uses it 10 times. Now, sometimes he'll remind people of things, and he's, being, he's kind of being encouraging in the way that he says it. You remember I taught you, or you've heard that it was said, but here, it's like he can't believe he's actually having to teach them the things he's having to say to them. Do you not know? <laughs> Do we got any parents in the house? Any parents here today? Raise your hand if you're a parent. Parents, you ever had things come out of your mouth you thought, I never thought I'd have to say that to another human being? <laughs> yeah, all right, you're with me on that. Do you not know? You're not supposed to drink out of the toilet, kids. Like, I never, I didn't think we needed to have, like, a lesson. Yeah, amen. People are, yeah, you like that more than the resurrection. I love it. <laughs> don't you know, kids? Like, don't you know? You're not supposed to eat out of the dog dish. You're not supposed to chew your toenails. Like, that's not a, there's a reason God put your feet so far away from your mouth. Do you not know? Like, Paul's frustrated. He's annoyed. He's upset here. Like, I can't believe I actually have to tell you this. Do you not know? You are God's temple. Next phrase. And that's our first point. Our first identity statement that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in the second half is that you are God's temple. Now, to grasp that, you've got to put yourself in the seat of the Corinthians and think about when they first heard this. If you were with us in week one, you remember I told you there are all kinds of temples, pagan temples in Corinth. 
And so there was the temple of Aphrodite, which had at that time, think about how big this temple would be. They had over a thousand temple prostitutes, because they were worshiping the god of sex, and they would send these prostitutes out to, to sell their bodies as, as religious worship. There were other temples too, and we know that because when we get to 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10, you're going to see they're still talking about as followers of Jesus, can we still go to these temples? Is it okay to eat the meat, the sacrificed idols? And they're having this theological debate, and these temples were prominent in this community. So with that in mind, Think about their Christianity. Remember Christianity in the first hundred years. They're not powerful. They don't have tons of money. They're not building big temples. Now in Jerusalem, Christians are still going to the Jewish temple to worship until AD 70 when it's destroyed. But they're in Corinth. And so these folks are meeting under trees. For people who have big houses, they're meeting in houses. It's kind of a ragtag group of believers here in Corinth. And he's going, there's only one true God. And God has one temple and it's you. Now, something else, it's hard to pick up in the English translation here. I don't know why they don't just translate it with the plural use sometimes, but every time the word use used here in verses 16 and 17, it's plural. And so different ones here, based on where you're from, maybe hear that different. If you're from the north, use, use guys. Some people affirming that, all right? Some of you, y'all, yeah, amening that. All right, I got a Texan. I heard a Texan voice out there. I remember when I first moved to Texas about 18 years ago. I remember when I first moved to Texas, and my, my southern friends would make fun of used guys. Used guys. Who says used guys? That sounds so funny. And then I get there, and I, and I actually thought, I didn't think anyone ever actually used the word y'all unless they appeared in an old cowboy movie, <laughs> or they were making fun of people that talk really slow, y'all. <laughs> Not you in North Carolina. I'm talking about Texas people. Don't be offended. But now I use that word, y'all. And so read the verse like that. And whether you're from the north or whether you're from the south, maybe that's why they don't do it because they don't want to get people in fights about it. But do you not know that you guys, all y'all, y'all? So do you know what that means? That means this is not about you individually, this identity statement. Now, when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it's going to talk about how you, with the Holy Spirit in you, are the temple of God. You should treat your body like a temple. And he's talking against sexual sin there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But that's a misapplication of this passage. It's true biblically. But if you, you start applying it based on 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you miss what God has from you, for you for 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is talking about just us when we're all gathered together. So let me read it. Do you not know that y'all, use guys, all y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in all y'all, use guys? If anyone destroys God's temple, singular, God will destroy him. What is God's temple? For God's temple is holy and all y'all are that temple. You are, when you're gathered together, not the church scattered, not talking about the church universal. We're talking here about the local church. You all, plural, when you're gathered together, you're the temple of God. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, there's two implications to that statement. The first one's glorious. The second one is serious. And the first one has to do with verse 16. The second one has to do with verse 17. Let's first talk about the glorious one. What does it mean to be the temple of God? Well, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see there are all kinds of images that are associated with the temple of God. Holiness, uh, set-apartness, 
Uh, when you enter the temple, they actually, when you read those chapters, it's like, why do I care about all these materials? What's happening is as you're moving closer and closer to the holy of holies where God's presence dwells, what you see is there's no graven images. There's no carved picture of God, but you're sensing that you're moving into the presence of God. The overarching picture of the temple in the Old Testament is that's where God dwells. Now, if you read Old Testament passages, they know the temple can't contain God. The heavens can't contain God. He's infinite, but where he chooses to have his presence dwell on earth in a unique way. Now, God's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time, but in a unique way, makes his presence known at the temple. So you read passages like 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon's dedicating the temple, and it says this cloud comes from out of the holy of holies, and the priests can't even do their work anymore, and God's manifesting his presence. He's putting his presence on display. And so what's being said here, the implication of that is, and we know this because of the next phrase, it says, you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you. That this is the dwelling place of God. As the people of God gather together in His name with the foundation of Jesus Christ, a real church. It's not just where two or three are gathered. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But when you come together as uniquely as the church, that God's presence is uniquely present. Implication? Here's the glorious implication. We should expect to experience the power and presence of God in our midst when we gather together as the church. Built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, putting Jesus on display. So the question has to be, well, how do we put Jesus on display? How does that happen? Well, think about people you've seen put Jesus on display before in their individual lives. And then how, how can, now what's unique about when we gather together? Some of you know that back in January, my wife and I were able to go to Israel. We were able to go to the actual spot where the temple once was. It's now been destroyed. As of 80, 70, it was destroyed. And uh, some people still go at, at, at kind of a foundational spot, the Western Wall, and pray. Jews will go there. You see it on the news every once in a while. And there's conflict in the Middle East. They're talking about they'll just kind of B-roll over by that spot. We, I went there. We went there. We prayed for you as a church at that spot. We were at the temple and seeing different things. Another place we went to was the Garden Tomb. Now, there's two spots that people debate might be the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea where Jesus' body was laid. One of them is the garden tomb. I went there, just FYI, the tomb's still empty. And Jesus is risen, right? Amen? That's better than getting your kids to stop drinking out of the toilet, isn't it? I mean, death has no victory over you as a believer, by the way. And so we were there, but I met this woman. She reminded me a lot of Mary Magdalene, if you're familiar with Mary Magdalene in the New Testament. And I just love how God uses women in the Bible and today. Uh, Mary Magdalene, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with her, um, she's, it says in Luke chapter 8, that she had seven demons cast out of her. She was somebody who financially supported the ministry of Jesus, and then she's present at the resurrection appearances. And it's awesome. I love this. God actually uses this woman to go share the news with the apostles. Apostle means sent one. And so she's like an apostle to the apostles. God uses this woman to go teach Peter and the other apostles about the resurrection of Jesus. And I'll, I'll tell you why this woman that I met at the garden tomb reminded me of Mary Magdalene. Her name's Leah. Uh, Leah is an Iraqi Jew who was born in China, and I met her in Israel, but she was actually from the UK. Um, that's where she spent most of her life. You picking this up, by the way? So you get this Iraqi Jew, the Chinese mom, born in China, but her dad was from the UK, and so she, he's British, and they're over there, and that's where she heard about Jesus, and then I meet her in Israel, she's talking about Jesus there. So here's what you need to know from just that. <laughs> uh, God can get the gospel to anyone at any point at any place. And so what he did is that because her dad was from the UK, they moved there. She had a classmate growing up who was a Christian. And this Christian girl used to always say to her, I want to serve God with all of my life. And Leah said, I wanted that too, but I didn't know what it meant. 
And so I'd watch her, and I'd see her pray, and, and this lady had shared the gospel with her, this young lady. She said, but then we got out of school. We weren't friends anymore. We lost contact. And Leah talked about how she got severely depressed. I think about Mary Magdalene, how she must have, the torment she must have felt, those seven demons. And Leah talked about her depression and how heavy it was. And she said, one night, I just desperately needed God. And I decided I was going to cry out to him if he was real, that I needed to hear from him. And so she said how she went home and she just started praying and physically crying, weeping, crying out to him for five hours. She said, and I fell asleep some of it, to be candid with you. And I wake up and I start praying again. I start crying again. I'm crying out to God again. She said, after five hours, she said, I heard four words whispered into my ear. Four words that changed my life. I died for you. And when I met her, it was 40 years after that night. That night she knelt down next to her bed, asked Jesus Christ to be her savior. 40 years later, in her golden years, she's walking around the garden tomb telling everybody who comes there, he died for you. And here I was as a pastor of these other pastors and I felt almost like Mary Magdalene. Let me tell you about the resurrection. She was putting Jesus on display how do we do that as a church? Uniquely as a church, it's different than what you can do. Individually, you can put Jesus on display. So don't hear me saying you can't. But how do we do that uniquely when we gather at the foundation of Jesus Christ, doing the things that are uniquely the church? Now, I listened to a sermon this week by David Platt, and he talked through 12 characteristics of the things that make a church uniquely the church. We don't have time for me to go through all those. But when we do all those, that's putting Jesus on display. Let me give you an example of a few. How about communion? You can't do that on your own. We gather, it's one of the ordinances of the church, one of the things that, that uniquely is supposed to happen in a church, underneath church leadership, biblically based, the community together. And do you know what? I, we're going to get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 eventually, but there's a verse in there that I just love. Sometimes we read it, sometimes we don't. And we're doing communion, but it's 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 26 says this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we take these little pieces of bread we take this cup, and because of what Jesus said about it, when we're doing that together in unity, we're saying, he died for you. Think about the other ordinance that we have as a church. We've only got two, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Baptism is the best picture we have of the resurrection as Christians. It's where people that are followers of Jesus say, I want the world to know I'm a follower of Jesus. And so this is the way that Jesus, this is kind of a weird thing. It's not really part of our culture as Americans, but this is what Jesus said to do, get dunked underwater. And so we, we dunk people under the water to identify with his death. And we'll say sometimes, based on Romans 6, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in a new way of life. He died for you. And he defeated death and gives life. Some of you here might need to be baptized. By the way, we're going to, Celebrate baptism again the next time on Easter Sunday. And so if you want to be baptized, just mark it on your card. Let us know. We'll get you the information about that. Think about other things that are unique that happen at church. How about teaching? Like you can study the Bible on your own. God can speak to you. You should. I hope you do study the Bible on your own. God can speak to you in that. But if God's presence is uniquely present, part of, one of the things unique about a church is the preaching of the Word of God. That God can meet with you in a unique way through the preaching. is different than when He speaks to you when you're studying on your own. Praise it. You can praise God in the car, 
Where's God present at? You don't, we talk about that passage where two or three are gathered, and sometimes you'll hear people say, that's all it takes to be a church, two or three. That passage is actually about church discipline, Matthew chapter 18. We'll talk about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is about one of the distinct things about a church that keeps each other accountable. But it's more than just two or three people getting together and talking about Jesus. There are these characteristics of the church that happen. When there's one person present, God's present, just FYI, you don't need two or three. That's a misapplication of that passage. But when we come together as a church, it doesn't matter if there's five, 5,000, 50,000. When we sing praises to God, God's uniquely present in a different way than when we're singing in our car. Why? Because of your identity. You, y'all, together, are God's temple. Why? Because the Spirit dwells in you. That is a glorious truth. And it's not just baptism, it's not just communion, it's also accountability, it's also the fellowship that we have. It's all the things that we see in Acts chapter 2 being lived out. When we pray, what does Jesus say? That my Father's house should be a house of prayer. Now you should pray individually. Go into your prayer calls and pray. Pray. Two or three people gather together and pray. But when we pray, there should be, when we pray together as a church, it should put on our natural dependence upon God because we need the song we sing. We need Him. So it puts God on display and His presence is here in the midst of that. You are God's temple. That's the glorious part. But let's look at the serious part, verse 17. Before I read verse 17, can I remind you of this truth? It's a scary thing, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And in case you might be a guest, you're like, oh, is this like Hellfire Brimstone Church? I didn't know that. No, that's not who we are. We just believe the Bible. So let me give you a Bible verse before I read verse 17 in this passage. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. That's what I just said. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's different than us. He's other than us. He is holy. And we like to talk about his love and his mercy and his grace. He's also righteous and just and disciplines those he loves. Look what he says next. If anyone destroys God's temple, remember who God's temple is. Use guys. You can say it. It's okay. Y'all, whatever vernacular you prefer, you are. You are God's temple gathered together. Paul doesn't say, I'm going to come get you. I know Jason Bourne. I'm going to pay him. He says, God will destroy him. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. For God's temple is holy. That's set apart. And you are that temple. I don't know this for sure, but I sense when I read those verses that Paul's not just talking to the people who say, I follow Peter, I follow Paul, but the people who started that. The people who are causing the division in the church. Saying, God's... God's going to deal with you. And what you see here is how important the local church is to God. I'll be candid with you. When I first became a Christian, I was one of those people that said, I love Jesus. I hate the church. The first church I started going to after I became a believer of Jesus, they went through a church split. They were arguing about like, whether to put songs up on the screen or sing them out of a book. They talk about like, whether a woman could wear pants in the auditorium for real. Like, there's a, Where's the dress code section? I didn't even see that. And I thought, the church is stupid. And some of you may have thought that. I didn't realize how immature of a statement that was. Because I didn't realize God didn't just die for me individually. Ephesians chapter 5, Jesus died for the church. He associates himself and identifies himself with the church. His plan for evangelizing the world is the church. His plan for you growing in Christian maturity is the church. He calls the church his bride in Ephesians chapter 5. Can I share something with you? If you came up to me in the lobby today and said, I really like you, I really don't like your wife though. I don't like you, just FYI. I'm a Christian, Jesus loves you, I gotta love you, but I don't like you. I want, we're not hanging out, I can tell you that. You can't say you love Jesus and hate his church. 
And here we see how important the church is. If anyone tries to destroy the temple, God's temple, that's his church, you all, God will destroy him. This is a warning. This is kind of the imperative. There's an indicative, you are God's temple. The imperative is, don't destroy God's church. But it's not just a warning. It's also an invitation. The invitation is, be who you were called to be, church. That's what he's saying to Corinth. Build up the church. Don't destroy the church. Then build up. That's your work. Your your life's work on this earth then is build up God's church. And when you get that, then the second point makes sense. That your confidence is built on the cross of Christ. That your confidence can then be, and I use built on, not just comes from or is displayed by, your confidence is built on the cross of Christ. Before I read verses 18 through 23, the rest of this passage, the rest of chapter 3, let me remind you of some of the foundation that's been laid by Paul. Because remember, he doesn't, it's not like chapter 1 one week, chapter 2 the next week, and there's big seven-day breaks in between this. He's writing a letter to them. In chapter 1, he's already laid the foundation about the cross of Christ. Remember he said in verse 17, it's possible to preach the gospel in such a way that it empties the cross of its power, where you focus on the messenger rather than the message itself. And then in verse 18, he said that the cross is actually foolishness to this world, but it's the power of God to those who are being saved. And we talked about how, based on this world's wisdom, and it doesn't matter which sect of the world you take, you could take a religion that's a world religion, you can take a a philosophy of life, you can take total pagan hedonism or any other kind of ism out there, they're all based on self. You do you, be true to yourself, it's all self-centered, build up your self-esteem, give you a little self-help, it's ultimately self-deceptive and self-destructive. And we talked about it from anybody who's got that perspective on life, that life's all about me, how foolish does it sound to say, die to yourself? Because Jesus says anybody, anyone, wants to follow me, they must die to themselves. And that the key to your life is to follow a guy who never had a degree, never owned any real estate, never ran any businesses, never, never held any office, and he died in a nondescript place in the middle of the world. <laughs> okay, that's foolishness to the world. And what happens here in these next verses is Paul flips the script. And he talks about it instead of from the world's perspective looking at the cross, he talks about it from God's perspective looking at the world's wisdom. Look at what he says. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Why? For the wisdom of this world is folly, foolishness with God. For it's written, this shouldn't be a surprise to you, it's already in God in the book, in the Old Testament, he quotes a couple Old Testament passages, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So, what does all this mean? Let no one boast in men. Why? For all things are yours. What do we mean by all things? Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, and he says it again, just in case you missed it, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. He starts this section. uh, This statement's worse than the first one. Do you not know? Get your mouth out of the toilet. Do you not know? You are God's temple. Here he says, did you see the first phrase? Let no one deceive. Interesting, interesting. He doesn't say, let no one deceive you. He says, let no one not be deceived by someone else. Let no one deceive. What does it say? What does it say? How can you deceive yourself? Don't you know when you're lying? And we've all lied, but you know when you're doing it, right? But we trick ourselves, don't we, all the time? Have you ever said this statement before? I would never. Fill in the blank. Whatever you said. And maybe it's like, I would never do this sin. But then what you find in your life is that time goes by and you make small sacrifices, uh, compromises, and it's not that big of a deal, and things happen, 
And before you know it, that sin that way back here, I would never, all of a sudden seems very reasonable. In fact, maybe God wants you to do that. (laughs) We deceive ourselves all the time. And James tells us it's one by our own, we give Satan way too much credit, by our own flesh. We want to go after sin. And Paul talks about it even as a believer. I do the thing, I don't want it, but then I want to. And sin's right there, it's waiting to have me. We deceive ourselves all the time. But how is Paul talking about being deceived? It's when we think that we're wise. When we think we know best. He says, let no one deceive himself, the next phrase, if anyone among you thinks that he's wise. Do you think anyone among them thought they were wise? Yes, that's why he wrote this. He's using their bragging and putting it as his argument against them. You think you're wise in this age? Then become a fool. Who wants to become a fool? Become a fool that he may become wise. He's going back to and talking about what we looked at in chapter 1. You've got to be a cross-centered Christian. Your confidence comes from the wrong thing. You're saying, I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. I follow Paul. No, your confidence should come in the cross of Christ, which is foolishness to man, but it's the wisdom of God. Isn't it interesting how in life you ever notice this, that oftentimes the things that you think God should do, he does the exact opposite? We were talking about this in our small group this past week, and I actually said, isn't it wild how oftentimes God does the opposite of what we think he should do in a circumstance? And somebody in the group said, why do you think that is? And I didn't have a very good answer at that moment, but then I went back, I was studying for this message, I'm like, that's because his, his wisdom's almost always opposite our wisdom. Now, I know in our church, we've got some people that have been following Jesus for 20 plus years, some people that have been following Jesus for like two days, I get that. Those of you who have been only following Jesus for a short period of time, can I tell you that if you start reading through the Bible, what you'll find is that God continually says things that would be the exact opposite of what we would think. And so he says the way to life is death. Uh, that sounds the opposite of the world's wisdom of if you, if you want to live this life, you get as much as you can out of this life, it's all you got. And he says, no, if you want life, anyone who wants to save his life must lose this life. If anyone's going to come after me, he must die to himself, take up your cross, follow me. The way to live is to die? Why would would Paul say for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? That doesn't make any sense. And the people that are proud, God's going to humble. And the people that are humble, he's going to exalt. That if you're a leader, you're supposed to be a servant. (laughs) Have you thought about how things work in this world? Like the leaders, the bosses, the CEOs of a company, everybody does what they want. But if you're a Christian CEO and you're going to have Christian leadership, you might as well change your title to CSO, Chief Servant of All. See how that's the opposite of what we would naturally think? But he's the greatest. He's going to become the least. If you want to come to me, you've got to come like one of these children. It's like the way up is down and the way down is up and everything's backwards. And, and what he says here is that wisdom is foolishness in God's sight. If you want to, you want to become a fool, become a cross-centered Christian. Why? And he gives some Old Testament verses there to talk about how foolish our wisdom is, that things are opposite. And then he gives the application, verse 21. Verse 21 is the heart here. So let no one boast in men. And that's some of the people that are going, I follow Peter and I follow Paul. And it's some of the people that are going, I'm pretty smart myself. Saying, no, no, no boasting in human wisdom. But then give me a reason not to, Paul. Give me the reason not to. And the reason not to sounds upside down to me. It doesn't, doesn't even seem like what the Bible should say. It says, for all things are yours. Stop boasting. You own it all. Well, that seems like a reason to boast. Uh. But when we think about what he's talking about here and the cross of Christ being the wisdom of God, it's through the cross you own it all. There's another identity statement for you. You are God's temple, and through the cross of Christ, 
You own it all. And this is one of the reasons why you can have your confidence, not in your wisdom, not in your gifts, not in your accomplishments, not in the people that you follow, but in the cross of Christ. Because through the cross of Christ, you own it all. We see this all throughout the Bible. There's multiple identity statements all throughout the Bible. In John chapter 1 and verse 12, any who believed upon Jesus Christ is giving you the right to be called a child of God. He's your father. Guess what? He created it all. Cattle on a thousand hill are his. He owns it all. It's all yours. If you want it really clear, read Ephesians chapter 1. One. Ephesians is a great book. It's six chapters. The first three chapters is only one commandment. It's to remember. So that means the first three chapters are all just truth that's coming at you, and a bunch of it's about your identity in Christ. You've been adopted into God's family if you're a follower of Jesus. What does that mean? Then you've got an inheritance. It also says that you have every spiritual blessing. It's the same thing Paul's saying here in this verse when he says, You own it all, which should make you incredibly secure. Because you have it all. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. It's a mistaken identity problem. That it's possible to be incredibly rich and live with a mindset of poverty. Pastor Scott Mason, our outreach pastor, and I were talking this week, and he told me a story about a woman named Hetty Green. And you can look her up on your own later. She lived in the 1800s, but she was incredibly wealthy. If you were to take her wealth at that time and equate it to today's numbers, it would easily be well over $100 million dollars. However, she always wore the same dress and same undergarments until they wore out. She instructed the people who did her dry cleaning not to wash the entire dress, but just the seams because she didn't want to spend the extra money on extra soap. She was infamously stingy. In fact, she carried biscuits in her purse so that in case she was at a restaurant, she wouldn't be tempted to order a meal, she could eat the biscuit out of her purse. She never used hot water, never turned the heat on in her house. There's a legendary story that one night she lost a stamp in her carriage and she spent the entire night looking for a two-cent stamp. She had a hundred million dollars. Who cares? She cared. One time her son broke his leg, and she took him to a free clinic for poor people. They realized who she was, so she paid the bill out of humility to get out of there. She was humbled by the situation to get out of there, took him to somewhere else, didn't get proper care, and his leg ended up having to be amputated because of her stinginess. But she had more, you wouldn't have, if you had a hundred million dollars, you wouldn't have to worry about money. Here's the reality. Many of you, you don't think you're rich. You might be sitting here thinking, talking about wealth and be like, yeah, that guy down there, he's got some nice pants, he might be rich. She looked like, I wish she got her hair done. She might be, let me tell you something. If you live in America, you're probably rich. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are rich. You have every spiritual blessing. You own it, this world is yours, he goes on to say. It's all yours. You own it all. But we live with this poverty mindset, and some of us don't realize that, see, poverty is not just not having a lot of stuff. It's not just circumstances and resources. It's a mindset. I remember realizing this when I was reading West Stafford's book. West Stafford used to be the president of Compassion International. Uh, we partner as a church with Compassion International to reach impoverished children all over the world. We've, we kind of focus as a church on Bolivia, but we've got people in our church that have sponsored kids all over the globe. And part of being the, the president of that organization is going and visiting these children and getting to know these people. And he told a story in his book, Too Small to Ignore, if you want to look the book up. He told a story of one time he was in Haiti. They were going through a drought. It hadn't rained there in 18 months. People were so desperate, they were eating tree bark and pulling hair out of their own head and eating it for substance. He was driving in a Land Rover. Yep, get that picture. He's driving in a Land Rover, 
into this impoverished area, dust is flying everywhere, hasn't seen anything green for miles, drives by a mango tree that's being chopped down by an old man with a machete, and he slams on his brakes, backs the Land Rover up, gets out of the truck, grabs the guy's hand while it's in midair, and says, what are you doing? And he speaks again about French Creole, and, he, and he's able to communicate with this guy, and the guy says, I'm chopping this tree down so I can sell it as charcoal. This is a beautiful tree. Does it still produce mangoes? And I said, yeah, I sold some last season. He says, how much money do you get when you sell mangoes off this tree? He says, $75. He says, how often does it produce mangoes? He goes, twice a year. He said, how much do you make when you chop this tree down and sell it for charcoal? He goes, $75. West Africa, I got them. You can make $150 a year every year from now on off this tree. And the guy starts chopping the tree down again. And he grabs me, he says, don't you see? And the guy gets mad and he goes, don't you see? I don't have tomorrow. I don't know that my kids are going to be alive in five months. All I have is today, and barely that. Poverty is a mindset, not just about the resources you have. These believers, he's saying to them, why would he say to them, don't boast because you have it all? And it seems like a weird thing to say. Do you know why? He's attacking the insecurity they have in their lives that's covered up by their arrogance and their cockiness. I love what John Piper says about this passage. He says the key to understanding, verses 18 through 23, is that first phrase. Let no one deceive himself. Let me read you a quote uh, as he was talking about this passage. He says, cocky, self-sufficient people who boast in the wisdom of men, whether it's their own or others, boast in the wisdom of men, have deceived themselves. How? By denying their deeply rooted insecurity. See, Paul's giving them this truth so you can be secure. You don't, you don't have to live just for today. See, some prosperity preachers will take a passage like this say, you own it all, and be like, so you need to live like a king. And you need to talk all about your health and your wealth here on this earth, which is the exact opposite of what Paul's actually teaching these people here. You can live for eternity because you own it all. You don't need to grasp for things. You don't need to fight for things. You have nothing to prove. You already own it all, which should give you incredible security. See, Christians, you know why one of the reasons why we don't serve like we should serve is because we're insecure, have you ever heard somebody teach on John chapter 13 before? It's where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And he, he takes off a, the rabbi robe that he has. He puts on a towel. He does the lowest of the low thing. If you've ever heard the sermon before, you hear pastors tell you like the background of that passage is you couldn't even command a Jewish slave to wash Jewish people's feet. You had to pick a, it's racist. You had to pick a Gentile slave and command him to, to wash the feet. That's, that's the reality of the, the day and age that they were in. And if you get the whole context and you, start, you can deduce from Luke chapter 22, the disciples are actually arguing about who's the greatest, and Jesus gets up and does the lowest servant. And usually the application of the sermon is always the same. It's, hey, Jesus did this. You should wash one another's feet. Get low. You should be able to be humble. But we miss what's said. There's a verse we just read past at the beginning of John chapter 13. That's a good application of the passage. But oftentimes we don't empower people on how to do it. And how you empower people how to do it is read John chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. Have you ever seen verse 3 in John chapter 13, or does it just get read past if you've ever heard this sermon? John chapter 13, verse 3 says this, Jesus, remember, they're arguing about who's the greatest. No one's done this lowest task. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. What does 1 Corinthians 3.21 say about you? Through the cross, you own it all. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. He knew his identity. And they had come from God. He was going back to God. Now his freedom rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. So Paul's telling you this, church, so you can have freedom. 
You don't have to be insecure. Jesus didn't think, oh, you know what? If I get down and I wash their feet, maybe they're not going to think I'm the Lord. Maybe they'll wonder if all those, maybe they'll undo all those miracles I did and they won't think I'm that powerful because I'm doing the lowest. No, he's free. Why? He knows he owns it all. The world is his. The present is his. The future is his. What does this passage say about you? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21, don't boast in men. Don't be so insecure as to be cocky. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos. You're saying that you, the reason why it was a problem that they were saying they followed Paul or Cephas or Apollos, they were impoverishing themselves. They belong to you. See, teachers in the church, they're given to the church as a gift to use their gift of teaching for the church. They serve you. You don't serve them. They're just a gift from God. You, you own them. And then he goes on and he lists. And if you notice, every one of the things he lists are things that hold people on this earth in bondage. The world is yours. And life and death and the present, the future. And think about those things. And he reminds them, all of it, all of it. This is not an extensive list. It's all things. The world, the world tries to squeeze you into its image. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12, 1, 2. What happens with the cross? The world serves you. This is now your platform to put Jesus Christ on display and build up treasure in heaven where thieves cannot steal and moth and rust cannot destroy. And You remember as you live in this world, this place is not your home. You're a citizen of heaven and nowhere does it feel like you exactly fit in here because you don't. You're a missionary here. This world is like your playground to accomplish your mission. It serves you. You don't serve it. Life, we cling to the here and the now. You've got to get what you can out of this life. And now, now, Now's this, this place, you begin to get glimpses of the eternal life you have. In fact, if you read about eternal life in the New Testament, you'll see that it's in the present tense. It's not just waiting for you when you die. John chapter 17, verse 3, now this is life today, present, that you know him, that you're going to be with him forever. Death, death is, no one escapes death. Everybody dies. And the Bible calls it the last great enemy. But Jesus Christ defeated it through the cross of Christ. You can have confidence in the cross of Christ. Your identity is there because you own it all. And death doesn't even have victory over you anymore. Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? That's already been defeated. Death now to you as a follower of Jesus is not something for you to fear. It's a passageway into the next life. The present, think about the tyranny of the present. Anybody have a lot of stuff to do? Ever feel that pressure? Yeah. Well, God's with you in the present. The president is yours there to serve you so that you can manifest the identity that he's given you. Don't live according to a mistaken identity. Let me press into this world to mold. You are different. The future, what is anxiety, by the way? A desire to control things that are out of your control, to handle things that are in the future. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, because of the cross of Christ, your future is secure. Don't fear those who can kill you. That's the worst they can do to you. Fear him who could throw you into hell. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ... You don't need to worry about that. You're secure. Your dwelling place is going to be with God, and he's going to be the temple. In fact, there's not going to be any sun in heaven, just FYI. The glory of God is going to light the place. That God himself is the temple, and there's no crying, and there's no pain. There's no more sin, and that you will be his people, and he will be your God, and you will dwell together. Your future is secure. These things that once held you in bondage are now your servants. He says this statement, you own it all, so you can be free. I want you, church, to be free. I want to be free. And if you grasp this truth, that you, through the cross of Christ, own it all, and security can be washed away. Do you know what that means? No more striving to prove something. You said you're free to serve others. This is what you're here to do. No more grasping for the things I need to get mine while I'm here. 
giving. You own it all. Can't ex- who's going to exhaust that wealth? You own it all. It's all, you- it's all here just to serve you. No more exhaustion and wearing yourself out, proving stuff, resting in Christ. No more trying to put on display all that you've accomplished. Let's look at what he's accomplished for us through the cross of Christ. Through the cross of Christ, you can have confidence because through the cross of Christ, you own it all. But not only that, he owns you. Look at how this passage ends. And you are Christ. There's an identity statement. You are God's temple. What does it say here? You are Christ, and Christ is God's. See, your identity is not just in who you are. It's in whose you are. And you were bought at a price. The price of his son, Jesus Christ, shed blood on the cross. That's the wisdom of God. We'd have never thought of the cross. But he thought he loved you so much, he'd go to the cross. No one took his life. He laid it down willingly for you. We don't have to be like Frederick Bourdain. I just want to be loved. We've got people looking for love all the wrong places. It's in the cross of Christ. That you, you know, do you know that you can't do anything to make God love you more and you can't do anything to make him love you less? You are his. You've been bought at a price. You don't need to strive to prove anything. You are God's temple. Your confidence is in the cross of Christ. You, through the cross of Christ, own it all. So you should be free. I hope you'll be free, church. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we'd be the church you desire for us to be. I pray that we'd put your glory on display when we meet together through praising you and teaching and that our leaders would live lives that are, that are worthy of being leaders in this church and that, that we'd celebrate the ordinances of baptism and communion and those things would put you on display. I pray that when people come into this place, they would sense your presence in a unique way, that we are your temple through the fellowship, through the hospitality, through the use of gifts. And God, many things we don't even get to talk about. I'm praying to you in this very moment and praying to you that you'd sweep through this place like that cloud did in the Holy of Holies. You'd make your presence known. There'd be no limit to what you do in our midst as we see, expect, and experience your power in our presence. And God, I pray you'd set people free from sin. I pray if there's people that have been in bondage to this world or to sin or to anxiety or to depression, that you'd set them free today. God, you can do that. You can do anything you want to do. God, I pray that you'd use your gifting throughout this place. God, I pray if you want to heal somebody, that you'd heal somebody in this place. If you want to save somebody, God, will you bring them to salvation in this very moment? As we sing these songs, I pray it's not something we'll do just to end the service and get done with a religious ceremony, but that your presence would be manifest in this time and that we'd reflect on the words that are on the screen and see if they're true coming from our heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.